I've been raised in this Arab Australian home. I'm quite conservative in real life. So I guess in my stories, it's kind of letting go a little bit Ah. and perhaps, you know, being brave enough to try the things that I wouldn't try. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Rights for Women, which is actually a rewind episode. It's an episode that has been previously recorded and published, released a couple of years ago, and it's my chat with Perth author Tess Woods. This interview was done at the time that Tess was just about to release her third book, Love and Other Battles. So there's some chat about that and lots of chat about where Tess gets her inspiration from, her writing process, the bits she loves about writing, the bits that she hates. So (laughs) I thought that this was a nice, fun, chatty interview to start off our month of rewinds. So over the course of July, I'm going to be taking a break from actually recording new episodes and releasing them and trying to get some writing time and also some podcast preparation and scheduling and reading done for the second half of the year. So I thought I'd bring you some old episodes, make them new again with a little bit of editing. So this isn't the full episode of the original version of my chat with Tess. It's been cut back a bit and I focused in on those things that I was talking about earlier, the writing process, inspiration and what Tess finds in her writing that gives her joy. So it's a lovely interview with Tess. I think there's lots of chat and fun and laughter and I hope that it brightens your day. Shout out particularly today to those who are in lockdown as I am myself around Australia and potentially in other parts of the world. It's a little bit hard to keep up with all the news of what's happening overseas as well as happening here but you know I'm hoping as we all are that we can just get through this lockdown period and that we can soon all be back to normal and be out there in the community safe and sound. So in the meantime I hope that you're getting some writing done, I hope that you're getting some reading done, I hope that you're able to enjoy some outdoor time, some exercise, some time with your family and to try as we all are in this period to find some joy in the small moments and count our blessings. So without any more ado, here is my interview, my rewind interview with Tess Woods about love and other battles and her writing process. I hope you enjoy. Today we have the lovely Tess Woods, who is a Western Australian-based author of three women's fiction novels, Love at First Flight, published in 2015, Beautiful Messy Love, 2017, and the soon-to-be-released Love and Other Battles. In addition to being an author, Tess is a physiotherapist with two children, a very busy life. She's also a mentor and a writing teacher and always I am blown away by how much Tess manages to fit in to her schedule. So welcome, Tess. 
Hi, how are you, lovely? I'm good. I'm good. Lovely to chat to you. So um, I just wanted to give people a bit of background about you with your writing. So if you could sort of just go back to the beginning for us in terms of when you first had the inkling that you wanted to write or be a writer and roughly how you got from there to where we are now with you with your third book about to come out. Okay. It it wasn't so much of an inkling as it was just consumed me overnight. It just came from nowhere. I was quite busy at work. My children were both still young. It was 2009 and I remember exactly when it was. It was the Australia Day weekend. And I had just been to see the Twilight movie, of all things, ah. uh, read all the Twilight books and been to see the Twilight movie. And that night I, and it sounds so corny, but it's the God's honest truth is that I had a dream and I dreamt a whole scenario of a book, which went on to be Love at First Fight. And I um, woke up the next morning and said to my hubby, do you know what? I've got a book idea. He kind of looked at me like I was crazy. But this scene was so, so strong in my mind. And it was actually a scene that ended up happening about halfway through Love at First Flight. So it wasn't even the start of the book. It was something that happened in the middle. And I sat down and wrote out this scene. And it was honestly the first time that I'd written anything since high school. I'd never done any kind of writing at all. Hadn't even written, you know, a letter of complaint to the newspaper. There'd been <laughs> nothing. So I wrote this scene out and then I thought, I'm going to keep going with this. And I wrote just under 50,000 words in three days. It wow. just poured out the three entire days. book. Three days. Hubby was bringing in toast. Kids were kind of, you know, who had been used to having mum around and not a lunatic who's just sitting writing in a room were really <laughs> confused, <laughs> bringing in their toys to sit and sit by my bed while I wrote. And I hand wrote the, the whole thing. And I pretty much had the bones of the story of Love at First Fright from start to finish in those three days. That's amazing. And then it took me about... Yeah, it was it was quite amazing. If only my other books had been like that, that would be <laughs> wonderful. But it was definitely a one-off thing. Um, so the book just, yeah, it came out of nowhere, poured out, and then it took me about a year and a half after those initial three days to get the story to where I, I was quite busy. So I was trying, you know, waking up early or doing it late at night, not really able to write during the And it took me about a year and a half to get it to where I felt that I was ready to perhaps submit to an agent. And from there, it took another couple of years to get an agent. I was rejected by pretty much every agent across Australia, including the agent that ended up being my agent, just in oh, really? She rejected the book and then she came back to me a whole two years later, emailed me out of the blue and said, you know, I rejected this manuscript of yours and every single, because my book was set of two people who kind of fall for each other on a flight, which is the love at first flight. Um, And she said, every single time I get on a plane, I think about your characters and I can't get that out of my head. She said, and I'm thinking, here I am two years later, still thinking about these characters. Maybe I should have actually signed this book. So, yeah, so that was how that came about. And then it's been since then, I guess, you know, there's been the one book every couple of years have come out. Definitely have never written 50,000 words in three days again Mm -hmm. (laughs) or had it as 
come as easily. Each book I've found has been significantly harder than the one before to write. So, yeah, that's kind of how it's yeah. happened. So that very first book, yeah. Love at First Flight, uh, so yeah. what was the process there? You got your agent and then she shopped the manuscript around for you. Was it fairly she quick did. that she managed to find your publisher? It was. It was very quick. I don't think she was all that impressed with how it happened because she shopped it around. I wanted HarperCollins. I had it in my head that I wanted to be a HarperCollins author for no other reason that I wanted to say I had Colleen McCulloch's publisher because <laughs> I operate <laughs> on a very shallow level. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason that I desperately and I desperately desperately wanted Jacinta to be my agent it's actually miraculous that she didn't take a restraining order out on me because I stalked <laughs> that woman and the reason I really wanted her was because I liked her hair <laughs> nothing, lovely nothing to do with well, look- anything else but the fact that I loved her hair <laughs> Um, so I do operate on a pretty shallow level with these things and I desperately wanted HarperCollins and HarperCollins offered me for Love at First a digital deal because they used to have like a digital imprint at that time okay and which was called Impulse and they offered me a digital deal which is you know no advance up front you're just going on royalties you won't get a print book you know won't be in stores just literally online and Jacinta kind of showed me this offer and she said you know we haven't exhausted all options here, so we could still be trying to get a print deal for you. But I was just like, take the digital deal. I just, I, yeah. it's HarperCollins and they've said yes and this is a foot in the door, so yeah. take it. So as my agent, she'd worked for, you know, she'd worked for me and worked so hard to get that deal. But when you get no advance, like your agent gets no money. So That's she... Nice really did all that work for free for me. So hopefully, yeah, over the years, it's kind of paid off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then how did that book end up in print test? Miraculously, mostly because of my publisher, Mary Rennie, who I also call the love of my life. (laughs) Um, She, uh, I'm not sure whether it was the fact that it was about an affair and that kind of got people's interests, you know, a woman having an affair on... Cheating on a good man, that kind of thing doesn't happen very often in literature. It's usually mm. that the woman is scorned or the husband is deserving of you know, yeah. her withdrawing her love or whatever. So I think just the premise of the story captured people's imaginations and the digital copies sold really well and were reviewed quite well and it sold around the world. And then it was about December, I think. There was, I mean, you would know about the Osram Today Reader's yeah. Choice Awards. It was up for book of the year. So Mary messaged me and said, it'd be interesting to see if it wins. You know, if it wins, it'd be really nice to have a little sticker on a book, Mm. wouldn't it? So that was my first little hint. And then it did win book of the year. And it was a few days after that, just a few days before Christmas. And Jacinta called me and said, I've got something for you that Santa can't bring you. (laughs) <laughs> and um, yeah, the, it had gone to um, acquisitions, and they decided to give it a shot at Great. printing, which has been phenomenal. Because to this day, it's the only digital book they ever took to print. Fantastic! So it was yeah, it wasn't something that was regularly done. It, it yeah. hasn't been done again. Yeah, that's amazing. Well done. Yeah, it was. It was, it was <laughs> miracles. Amazing. Yeah. So you were saying, obviously, that, you know, churning out 50,000 word draft in three days, you were channeling. 
Yes, it yeah. was. It was a real, yeah. it really was. And I'm so devastated that that's never happened yeah. again because I was thinking I had this extraordinary gift of being able to do that. And then it's been blood from a stone ever since. <laughs> well, the second book was, you know, significantly harder. I think that book received a pretty good reception, didn't it? Beautiful, messy love. It's it did, yeah. It, it actually, I think it attracted a different kind of audience to Love at First Flight. So it was good. It kind of opened up my audience a little bit. It had some much nicer reviews from, from some more reputable sources, which was <laughs> nice. But yeah, and I think that book, it's the book of my heart because there was so much of me in that story mm. as well, just mm. bringing in my Arab culture and it's a cross-cultural relationship, which is what I have. So yeah, I just, I really felt very connected to mm. beautiful, messy love. Actually, you have an Egyptian heritage, is that correct? I do, yes. I was yeah. born in Egypt and then I migrated to Australia when I was little, so I started school in Australia. So obviously for that book in particular, but in, in your writing in yeah. general, how do you feel that that's your cultural heritage and your background inform your writing? Do you know, I think it's everything because I think my culture has made me who I am mm. and I guess my values, my morals, what I find funny or all that kind of stuff comes from, you know, how the way you've been raised and I've been raised in this Arab Australian home. I'm quite conservative in real life. So I guess in my stories, it's kind of letting go a little bit ah. and perhaps, you know, being brave enough to try the things that I wouldn't try yeah. in life. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, especially for Love at First Flight, it's about an affair. It obviously has some sex scenes in it that aren't fade to, you know, fade to black scenes. Mm. They're actually written scenes. I was absolutely terrified of upsetting my family when yeah. I wrote that because, you know, I was worried about the shame I would bring them. And yeah, mostly they've been okay. My family have been amazing. You know, my cousins have been so supportive and yeah, my mum, I think, tells everyone she knows wherever she goes who I am and she's my number yeah. one publicist. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But I think it's definitely, it's a huge, huge influence on all aspects of my life. So it's obviously going to come in through my writing as well. Your writing, yeah, yeah. Let's have a chat about the new book, Love and Other Battles. Could you just give okay. us a little bit of an overview of what that one's about? Sure. It's an Australian-based story and it's a story of three generations of women and so it's from all three women's point of view and it's set in three locations because, you know, I'm an idiot. <laughs> three timelines, three locations, three point of view, why not? Any wonder it took me two years to write. So the original story is um, set in the at, towards the end of the Vietnam War and it's Jess, who is a young woman in 1969, but then in the contemporary story, she becomes the grandmother of the story. And she's a young hippie living in Melbourne who finds herself falling in love with a soldier that's about to be drafted to war, something that you know she never planned. So it's the story of her her love affair and the story of this soldier and then as the contemporary story it's now her looking back her returned vietnam veteran husband is in a nursing home he's suffering from debilitating advanced parkinson's disease so it cuts between their story now and back to their youth you know with the vietnam war and then the middle story is about Jamie who's Jess's daughter 
and she is a school principal. She's a single mum. She's quite a hardened person. She's been hurt in love and so it kind of explores her story and how she came to be a single mum. And then the the third generation is CJ, who's a 17-year-old teenager who falls pretty hard for the wrong kind of boy at school and gets into gets herself into a real fit with drugs and with photos and videos being taken of her without consent and the whole without sort of a spoiler all mm. three stories end up linked together and the mm. past kind of comes back to haunt the older generations with CJ's actions as a 17 year old mm. so yeah that's a is summary. <laughs> oh, thank you. Such a wonderful job of sort of connecting those three storylines. And I just wondered, you know, did one of those storylines come to you first and then you came up with the other characters in response to that or were they three ideas that yeah. were and you brought them together? How did that work for you? Mostly. The way that it's happened with Beautiful Messy Love and with this story is that my agent tells me I need to have a new book and I don't have one and I make shit up on the spot. <laughs> exactly I love it. what's happened in my last two books. <laughs> so what had happened the day before this story, I had to, you know, sort of say what I was doing and I knew that this conversation was coming with my agent. It was... Um, 2016 and I went to see Leanne Moriarty talking in Perth with quite a few of my author friends. We sort of booked a table and went to see Leanne Moriarty talking. And during her talk, I don't know what brought it up, but she was talking about these sweeping generational stories that go over many years. And I think she was talking about a book that she liked um, that had done that. And so I was sitting there and I knew that my agent was after the next story for my publisher and I thought, oh, I'm going to do that because, you know, Leanne Moriarty likes it. So, um, so then I had the idea of the three generations and we all went out for lunch after the Leanne talk. And another Perth author, Renee Hammond, I was sitting there going, you guys, I have got to reply to my agent by Friday, you know, with my new story. And I literally truly don't have one. I, can people start throwing ideas at me? Because so far I've only got that I'm doing three generations. And Renee Hammond said, you know what you should write about that would be really funny. She said, you should write about my nan who has now passed away, but she was she used to deal dope, like grow marijuana in her backyard <laughs> and deal it. And I looked at her and friends were sitting with us and they said, no, don't do that. That is not a good idea. I said, you know what? I'm going to write a story about a dope dealing grandma. And that is honestly how the book came about. So once I had that and I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. It's got to be three generations. And I thought, okay, how can I link a grandma with marijuana to a you know, to, to a third generation, I thought, how about if the grandma grows marijuana and the granddaughter gets in a whole lot of trouble mm. from that? And then I'd always, one of my favourite movies is The Notebook. I just really, really love that movie, more than the book, actually. But I'd always, in the back of my mind, wanted to write a notebook kind of story. So then I thought, you know, if I could then go back in time from this grandma and tell her story, and it fit, it actually, the timing fit really well to make it a Vietnam War story, yeah. like the notebook was a World War II story. The only problem was that I knew absolute, like literally nothing about the Vietnam War except for, you know, Good Morning Vietnam that I'd seen. 
I wasn't taught in school. Like I, I had no knowledge of it at all. Mm. So I decided to just start researching the Vietnam War and it, the story really just came from then. I became very interested in the war and what happened to Australian men that were drafted and what happened to them on return and, yeah, I guess that's mm. where the story came. And then the other part of the story, which is there's a Nashville kind of subplot going in the background there of a famous singer was purely because at the time I was obsessed with the show Nashville. So oh, I was watching okay. that and totally obsessed. So when my agent actually said, okay, what's the story about? What I told her was it's going to be three generations. It's a dope dealing grandma. The granddaughter's going to find the dope and there's going to be a Nashville singer in it. <laughs> she said, go for it. So that's how it started. I love it. I love how you've sort of got all these different, you know, elements and you've blended them all together. It's great. And somehow and- it all works out. You know, I remember yeah. beautiful Messy Love. She messaged me and said, your, your publisher wants to know what the next book is when they're taking Love at First Flight to print. And she said, they don't want to, we don't have to sign a two book deal because I was very, very paranoid about mm. signing more than one book. I think there comes my Arab culture again. I thought it was a jinx. If I sign more than one book, right. I'm going to be completely jinxed and not be able to write the second one. So all of my books have actually been one book deals. And Jacinta said, you don't have to sign a two book deal, but they actually just want to know that you're not a one trick pony and that yeah. you know, you'll be able to produce something else. And as I got that email, I was sitting on the couch. My husband was sitting on the beanbag in front of me watching an Eagles match on TV. And I just looked at him and thought, oh, I'm an Arab, he's Australian. I said, so I emailed her and said, so Jacinta, my book is going to be about a cross-cultural relationship between an Arab woman and an Australian man. And I looked at the TV and there were Eagles on. I said, it's going to have a footy star. And that's where we went with beautiful <laughs> So it really is just making stuff up on the spot yeah. but then somehow having to get that 100,000 words out there to make it a book. Just yeah. easy, isn't it? Just so yeah, easy. Yeah. So, so you were mentioning you've got the three generations and that the main characters are yeah. three women, Jess, yes. Jamie and CJ. We don't want spoilers. Yeah. But um, just a little bit of an idea about each character. Yeah, well, Jess is, Jess is actually named after my darling friend Jess who passed away and who was uh, just, she was like a 1960s hippie that had been, I don't know, she'd somehow been dumped in our generation now. Right. And, you know, she just grew all her own food and didn't have a TV in the house and wore rainbow hippie clothes and she was really just a one of a kind and I guess I wanted to honour her in a story. So the character of Jess, who is a young, feisty nurse who's very anti-establishment in 1969 and as a current, you know, older, she's now I think 70 in the current contemporary story, is still that same character. She's still very feisty and knows what she wants and yeah, just has her own mind. I I really love her as mm-hmm. a character. Yeah. Um, and then Jamie, her daughter. I thought, how do you, how do you kind of rebel against parents that are dope smoking and very relaxed, and you're allowed to do anything you want. You don't even have to call us mum and dad. And I thought, well, the way to for a teen to rebel against that is to be really conservative, I yeah. guess. So Jamie became the very conservative character. 
and she's got a heart of gold, but it's hidden, I guess, behind some layers that she's got Mm. there. And then young CJ is a throwback to her grandma, which I think we often see in generations as well, that we see the link between grandparents and grandchildren. You know, she looks like her grandma. She acts like her grandma. She's a young hippie at heart. She's a musician. But she also, she wears her heart on her sleeve. And I guess her self-esteem isn't really high because she's, uh, kind of bullied into doing things that she really doesn't want to do consent-wise mm. and, it, yeah, ends up really harming her. Yeah. So you have teenage children, yeah. Tess, don't you? I do. Yeah. I do. And, and were they a great was, um, sort of resource for you in creating that younger character? Absolutely. I mean, that I have a very, you know, very limited imagination. So young CJ looks like my daughter. She has my daughter's birthday. She um, dresses like my daughter. She's a singer and a talent like my daughter. (laughs) So there's so much of my daughter in there. And because CJ's story is um, quite dark, for me as a mum, it was like taking myself to the place where my nightmares live with my own Mm. child, with you know, raising a teen these days where self-harm, it's like the go-to for teenagers when things are going wrong, when Mm. you're self-loathing, you know, self-harm seems to be, it's rampant. It's just something that's epidemic at the moment. So raising a daughter in this day and age where if if the possibility of self-harm is so high, the possibility of naked selfies being leaked, videos you don't want being leaked, all of that, it's just, it's become a real, it's a reality for a lot of mothers of teenagers. So I guess that was just something I wanted to explore and how would I handle that if this was our situation and my daughter was going through this, how would I handle that? And my beautiful niece was amazing and really helpful. She's still a young, very young woman at the moment, but in her teenage years, she she tried to take her life and she self-harmed, you know, it, it was an addiction. Mm. And she was very honest and open and I interviewed her and, yeah, I got a lot. I got yeah. a lot from her. So I wanted to write her story with as much you know, dignity as I could for mm. her as well. It's yeah. great that you can draw on, you know, family and friends to build those characters and to make those issues in the book so real, you know? Yeah. I was very lucky to um, have amazing help from Vietnam veterans as well Uh um, to bring the Vietnam story to life. One of them I've actually become like quite close to because we've worked so closely together over the couple of years, Mike Byron, you know, at one point I was, you know, we were communicating every day. We were talking every day because, there wouldn't be a paragraph where there wasn't something I needed to check, even though I'd spent a whole month and watched hundreds of hours of documentaries and read so much that I still felt that I needed someone who was there to be telling Mm. me how accurate things were. And he was remarkable and so forthcoming with everything and, you know, shared things about himself that was so deeply personal because he desperately wanted to see a novel about Vietnam that was accurate. So it was very important to me to portray the Vietnam vet from their point of view Mm. as well because really all I knew before that was the stereotype of the Vietnam vet, you know, that 
they've come back and they're alcoholics and they've gone bush and they're mm. miserable and you know we we have such a distorted stereotype of Vietnam vets compared to the hero worship of our returned soldiers from other wars yeah. look at the way we think about Anzacs compared to the way we think about our Vietnam vets when in reality these men have all gone to war they've all done very mm. similar things and been in very similar situations but for the misfortune of the vets it was on camera and you know yeah. the Anzacs didn't get their stuff caught on film did they so no, it's a yeah, completely different world exactly mm. um where where soldiers were revered and where the government was right and you know the Vietnam War happened in this era where everyone was rebelling and it was so anti-establishment mm. that it was the worst possible time for people to be doing something that was pro-government at the time yeah um, so these guys have they've really suffered you know Mike is um 70 years old now and still tra- you know completely traumatized by the events of things that happened when he was a 20 year old man and so I was just very very grateful for his honesty and he even proofread the book for me once it was done to make sure that everything was above board so I feel really confident that I'm putting something out there that even though which was a very hard balance for me to do that I wanted to write it an anti-war book while honouring our veterans and that was a hard balance to achieve but I think you know I've got a Vietnam veterans tick of approval so hopefully yeah. they're gonna yeah be okay. I'm sure so you do deal with you know a number of social issues in the book did you set out to write pe- yeah. about particular things or were they things that arose no. Characters themselves and the storyline. I'm not a plotter, and you know, I surprise myself <laughs> with each page <laughs> that I write. So I'm like, oh, that happened. Wow. So, yeah, they know these things definitely kind of developed as I was writing. I'm always influenced by things that I've seen or heard or real life situations. I draw on a lot of r- real things to mm. create the, the novel. And, like, even with the Parkinson's thread, that came from you know, years of working um, in geriatric physiotherapy. I've spent over, you know, 10 years working in nursing homes and dealt with, you know, treated a lot of patients who are kind of end-stage Parkinson's disease. And my father-in-law, who I was incredibly close to and adored, he passed away a few years ago and he suffered from Parkinson's disease. Mm. So there was a lot that I could put in just from our experience, my experience as a health professional, but then also a very personal experience that it happened in our family. And I just remember with my father-in-law that he was, he was very angered by the fact that euthanasia was illegal and he was a proud man he was a you know ex-raf and just a the life of the party real extrovert and parkinson's just turned him into you know a shell of his former self and he was just desperately unhappy in that situation and he didn't have any agency he had no agency Mm. so he just knew and, and just the knowing that there's no way up, he knew that he was going to continue to decline until, it, you know, he passed away. And mm. for him to not have any say in that, that was something I really wanted to explore in my book as well. Yeah. For writers out there listening, what would be some of your tips and tricks about sort of getting into your characters' heads and into their skin? Because, you know, you do have this shift from character to character. You have characters that you see yeah. in the present and the past. How did you go about really getting into those characters' heads, you know, for the different time periods as well? 
Yeah, for the time periods, I I watched a lot of documentaries. I found that that was really helpful, and even just shows set in that time period. Like I watched um, the series of Love Child, just to oh, see yeah. how do people speak? How do people speak in that time? What was the lingo? Because things do change, and even you know when they went to a bar, a woman wouldn't even order a glass of wine. There were things mm. that you you know cultural things that change. So I think watching documentaries is a really good one for me. I actually find I'm, I think, more a visual person, so I find watching things better than reading things because I get a, a more of an idea. And I also do base a lot of stuff on, on reality. So it's things that I've come across in my life or um, people I know and a mesh of all of that stuff. So I guess my tip would be to stick as closely to the truth as you can in your stories, obviously without you know getting yourself sued. Yes. Yeah, just really using reality for fiction because it, it just makes it believable. The process, it's a bit like going for a run. I'm definitely not one of those writers that sits there in heaven writing out my draft. It's just this painful, ugly, tearful, angry, what am I doing with my life? That's what's happening while I'm writing. And then when I finish, it's such a huge sense of achievement and filled with love for a story that, you know, I hated the whole time I was writing. (laughs) So, um I really love having the, you know, the book that's that's done, the draft that's finished, and then we can start the editing, and that's when I start to really enjoy the process. And and one of the things that you say on your website yeah. is that you yeah. would consider your books oh, okay. love love stories, but not necessarily romances. Could you just talk about that a little? Where your stories fit, you know, in that whole spectrum of yeah. genres that are out there. Romance, we kind of have the expectation that we know what we're getting ourselves in for, and people go and buy a romance novel when they know they're going to get that happily ever after and then it's just finding out about the journey to get there but they know you know they're going to read it on holiday or read it at the beach and they're going to be happy when this story finishes and for me I haven't wanted to write books with a a guaranteed ending like that Mm. because it wasn't it's not reality for me not everyone has that happily ever after so while I try and do an ending that why, you know, perhaps leave people wanting to chase me up the road <laughs> as an angry mob. I try and do, I try and have a satisfying ending where, you know, the ends are tied up, but not necessarily that happily ever after. So I think mm. that's probably where my love stories differ from your, I guess, stereotypical romance novel. Mm. Mm. And what are you happy to be called a, a women's fiction author? Or like I know that the whole label women's fiction is a yeah. one that some people like and others don't. But to be honest, personally, to me, it's a label that I don't think matters to anyone except people in the industry. Like your people on the street aren't thinking, "I want to go out and buy a women's fiction book." I think mm. it's something that's really just industry based. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me so much, but I think it's a bit dumb, really. <laughs> just it's just what's women's fiction? It's just fiction. We would never say men's fiction mm, for a, mm. a male writing. And I actually think I know people complain about how sexist it is, but I actually think it's sexist the other way towards men because it's like women can read everything. We can read any book at all that's out there on the market, but men, you can't read these ones. These are just right. for women. 
You stick to your ones and these are for the women, but women can read everything. So I think, you know, I know my husband, he's biased, but for one, he loves my books. He loves those love stories. And I've got some really passionate male readers. So it's kind of insulting to them to, you know, not be, I guess, acknowledged that they're Mm. readers of these books as well, because they are. Yeah, it's like putting that barrier up for who who's allowed to read the stories and who isn't. Yeah, when you put it the other way, like, you know, when they say, if you said, oh, yeah, this is a male guitarist or a male firefighter, this is a men's firefighter. It, mm. it, it, when you put it to other job descriptions, you see how stupid it is yeah. that we've got women writing women's fiction. It's fiction. You don't yeah. really need that. Yes, I think it's more just an industry thing for them to be able to know how to pitch books to to booksellers or how to put them on, you know, with their metadata digitally. I don't really think it's something that's spread out to the community. They're looking for women's fiction books as as consumers. More a marketing tool. I think so, Mm, yeah. mm. The other thing I wanted to chat to you about was you do do teaching and mentoring and you've done a fair bit of work in schools with young women. Yeah. And you put together or helped put together an anthology of young women's writing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? That was amazing. They were just amazing girls. I guess and it's being a health professional for the last 25 years is that it's a, a job with service where you're just of service to others. And then this writing career came out of left field And it felt like such a selfish job. You know, I was doing it for nobody but me and that just didn't sit right with me. So from the start of my career, I guess I've tried to find ways that I can use being an author as a way to serve others. And um, I'm very passionate about homelessness, especially for women who are often put in that situation because of domestic violence and bad relationships. So... I've worked with Share the Dignity, working with women who are already homeless and then I desperately wanted to do something to not band-aid the problem but to try and prevent some of that. And so I kind of thought the way to go about doing that would be to work with girls who who are underprivileged and who perhaps don't come from, yeah, just from very safe environments. Mm. So I reached out to, actually the girl's teacher was a fan of mine, had read my books okay. and I reached out to her and asked if she was interested in me coming and working in their school voluntarily and she was you know, really supportive. And then she, I think a little team of them, chose 12 girls who they thought would really benefit from a creative writing mm-hmm. course where we really talked about things that are important to them, issues like con- sex and consent, drugs and alcohol, how to be a just a really giving member of the community, a valuable mm-hmm. member of the community, careers, decisions about relationships with families and friends and all that, social media, all those kind of things. So I would meet with these girls and we had um, three-hour sessions where we talk about all this stuff. We did a book club because I'm very passionate about giving girls the tools to Mm. just improve and improving through reading. And and then they would write for me. They'd write their stories. They'd write poems. They wrote blog posts. They could write. There were no rules. They could just write whatever they wanted based on the topic that we'd covered that day. And then 
at the end of the year, we put together this anthology of some of the poetry and letters and stories that they wrote, which I was just very moved by the stuff mm. that they came up with. And wow. you know, nine of the 12 girls didn't have English as a first language. So for them to be then putting out a book in yeah. English was quite incredible. And how wonderful yeah. for them to go through that whole process and then to see their words in print, you know, yeah, and to be able to share that with their family and friends. And Yeah, yeah, their launch was just one of the most joyful days of my life. It was just unbelievable to watch the pride from their families and the pride the girls had in themselves was incredible. And then they were just wonderful too because they didn't take any of the profits and these aren't girls who are coming from wealthy homes Mm. and they did not take a cent of profit. They gave all of their profit to Books in Homes, the charity Books in Homes gives books to underprivileged children. So that's how they wanted to use the money they made from their book and you know, we gave $1,000 to Books in Homes just based on their pre-orders alone. So they did so well. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's the, that for me, that's my crowning glory of my career so far. I've just absolutely loved working with those girls. It's yeah. great to hear. Yeah. And, and like you say, it's a great combination of your skills as a, you know, health professional and as a writer and bringing all yeah. those things together and being able to work with young women. It's amazing. Yeah, and I think um, just working, in, I, I started off wanting to go very big and just, you know, like the whole West Coast Fiction Festival and organising that and trying mm. to do really huge things to realising that you can make a really massive difference to the world helping one person. Yeah. And that's been a progression for me to, to come to that realisation of, you know, I don't have to be Oprah. I don't have to do yeah. this on a massive scale. <laughs> I don't need to open a school in Africa to be effective. You know, I can just help this one child through life and that 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 can be enough to make, make a, a huge big difference. difference. Yeah. Well, it's been so lovely chatting to you. Congratulations on another wonderful book. And oh, thanks so much for chatting, Tess. It's been great. And yeah, all the best Thank with the book. Darling. I hope it goes wild for Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>